0: Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey, it's Tommy. Um, If you don't currently have an ops management platform like Ops Analytica in your business, then I hate to be the one to tell you, but you are losing to your competitors that do. It is 2021. If you honestly believe that the world we live in today with technology the way it is, that you can still compete with other chains that have real-time visibility into their operations, that have the ability to identify issues, to crowdsource solutions, and are able to then roll out process changes in hours or a day or two versus weeks or months. If you think you can beat them, then you are crazy, right? I see what our clients are doing with our platform every day. They are incrementally getting better because they manage their entire system like a GM manages a restaurant. You cannot compete with that. Data is not going away. Technology is not going away. You cannot operate like this is 1985 anymore. You have to get real about your operations. You can't back into it by looking at customer satisfaction and food costs and labor costs and all that stuff. You got to have real-time ops data so you can manage your business better. And Ops Analytica is dying to help you make that transformation. Uh, Check us out at OpsAnalytica.com. Hey there, Order Up Show podcast listeners. Quick message from uh, me, your host, Tommy. New episodes are going to start dropping on Wednesdays weekly. Okay. So look for new episodes starting on Wednesday. Hey there, Order Up show. It's Tommy. And I'm back with another interview. I am so excited to be interviewing my guest today. Please welcome to the show, Jeremy Julian. Jeremy, how are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show, Tommy.
0: Oh, you are welcome, sir. So here's the deal with the Order Up show. We ask the same five questions of every guest. And the first question is really all about you. So let's go. Oh, let's
1: my... go. <laughs> I would say that's always that's always a fun thing to to try and talk about yourself for a couple of minutes. But uh, uh, I first and foremost, I'm a father of four. So that's uh, that's probably my full time job is beyond beyond what I do professionally. But uh, um, in my day job, I get the, uh, the privilege of uh, running a software technology company that services the restaurant industry. And I am also the host of a podcast um, that really deals with uh, restaurant technology, called the Restaurant Technology Guys Podcast. Um, and on the day job side, we sell we sell things like point of sale, um, recipe management, inventory management, labor management into the restaurant vertical. And I have had the privilege of doing that for over twenty years.
0: Yeah, and what's the name of your company? And plug yourself.
1: Uh, yeah, I always I always have our time. So the name of our of our company is um, the name of our company is Custom Business Solutions, and again, our, our primary office is in uh, Irvine, California. And then, uh, um, as Tommy you and I talked about, I recently moved to Dallas to our secondary office out of the Dallas market. And so uh, we serve pr- pretty much the West Coast uh, with uh, our product that got us into the industry, which was PosiTouch. And then uh, we also started our own point of sale software company about ten years ago, called Northstar um order entry and that's a cloud-based uh, restaurant technology solution that we really tried to solve some of the problems that we saw with some of the uh some of the players that were out there focusing on mid- mid-market uh restaurant chains that kind of kind of span the uh, span the gamut from fast food all the way through fine dining
0: cool so you came up selling originally pos systems yep right and then, and the ancillary plugins at SPOS. And I want to kind of get into all of them because we're going to use this podcast today to talk about some of these other software platforms, the, the benefits, the costs, what's great about them, what they are lacking, you know, yada, 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 because we really haven't done that on the show. And we're like, you know, I think this is going to be our 71st episode. So, um, you know, I want to, I want to dive into some of these other tech platforms and the value that they bring. Um, today. But so you started off selling PosiTouch and servicing yep. Touch and getting it installed in restaurants. And then what led you guys 10 years in to go, hey, we should build our own POS system because that's not generally an internal skill set that a lot of people have.
1: Yeah. And it really started, Tommy, because we um, we had a fantastic and still have a fantastic partnership with the team at Touch. They've been great business partners for well over 20 years for us. Um, but somewhere along the line, we, um, and I, and I can harken it back to about 1996, 1997, we started selling some, some restaurant groups that were more than just a single unit operator and the, the needs, um, once you get beyond kind of the, the owner operator, you know, or family, they might have a sister running one store and their brother running another store and their kid running a, a, a third store. Once you get beyond kind of 10 or 15, stores you start to run out of people that you you can you can trust just because you can trust them and you start needing to have systems and at the time posi touch was really geared towards a single unit operator and there wasn't a lot of tools to get above store data um, there wasn't a lot of tools to integrate to accounting packages and so um, we were privileged enough to sell like in the nineties to a brand that's no longer around called Kukuru. Then we'd work <laughs> with the Rubio's brand, which Rubio's is still around in Southern California. Then in the early two thousands, we, we landed Cheesecake Factory and, and BJ's restaurants, both as, as current clients and still clients. Um, and they were just, they were lacking on the PosiTouch side. Some of the stuff, the PosiTouch, you know, that, that, that it, either didn't choose to do or didn't have the skills to do from an an above store perspective. And so these clients in in our quarterly business reviews, when we were meeting with them, they'd come back to us and say, you know what, we really need something to manage our menus from corporate and Positouch didn't have something, or we really need something. And again, this is going back 20 years. We really need something to get our above store reporting and do accounting integrations. And again, this was well before we had a lot of products like, like stuff that you you work with and, and others. And so we said, okay, well, we'll, you know, what do you need? And we had some smart people on our team that knew how to program. And, and quite frankly, it started that dialogue of, you know, do we go solve customers problems by creating things? And, and, uh, um, the guy that originally wrote our very first line of code into our, you know, to, to attach to PosiTouch touch is still with us today. Um, and, that really evolved into us solving customers' problems and writing different things that, that were add-ons to the restaurant vertical. Another product that came out of a customer conversation is our recipe management product. We've got a product called Northstar Recipe Viewer, and it was a digital recipe book when one of our clients got their recipe book stolen from, from their brand, and and somebody else opened up down the street with their recipes trying to replicate what they were doing. They came back to us and said, you know what? How do we secure these things? And they were going to do something in SharePoint and it was this crazy deal. And oh, we said, hey, why don't we just design something for you? And we designed this application that's still being sold today and still being used in thousands of restaurants across the US.
0: So, so Northstar, is it a freestanding POS, or is it, a, is it a pack that gets sold on top of a Posy touch register so that it has all the other functionality?
1: so the the origination of Northstar was to land on top of PosiTouch. And so um there was a a product called Northstar Enterprise that we still sell and support today that was really to t- attach to PosiTouch. and then there's another product called Northstar Change Management, which is a menu management tool that sure. attaches to PosiTouch. Then, you know so you'd ask the question, how do you get into software development? How do you start to build your own product? The development of Northstar, Point of sale really came from an existing relationship with a Positouch customer that came to us 10, a little bit more than 10 years ago, and said, Hey, we want to do order at the table. And this is before kiosks. This is before sure. Ziosk. This is, you know, some of the really big brands, the Taco Bells, the Arby's of the world, had tried kiosks in the lobby, but they wanted to do a casual dining concept, but put kiosks at every table. And sure. this was originally well before an iPad. the iphone had just come out and they said hey we want to do this and you know the technology was really 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 um immature and and we said okay well you know let's let's discover what you're trying to do and at the end of the day we looked at their needs analysis and said you know what we can build a point of sale Um, little did we know 10 years ago that it was gonna be a lot harder than we thought it was gonna be to both uh both build the point of sale and then uh you know because we had sold point of sale so we we were like oh we know what we know what people need yeah. Um, you know, and we, we know how to do this stuff. And again, like I said, it, it, it uh, it, it's been a, a labor of love and it's been a fantastic journey, but at the same time, um, I think we bit off quite a bit, um, quite a bit, uh, in the way of what we were doing. And so now we're out selling and supporting both products, but we chose to keep the North Star moniker, um, because we had some brand equity from the other stuff that was attached to PosiTouch and our recipe viewer product, which is Point of Sale Agnostic, that digital recipe book. But it had some cachet and it had some brand awareness. So we decided to name our Point of Sale application North Star Order Entry. Um, and uh, that's really where where uh, where we started in our own development of the point of sale. And again, like I said, branded it Northstar because of, uh, because of those other customer relationships and those other people that were already using other stuff. So we equate it to like Microsoft office, you know, you've got Excel, you've got word, you've got, um, you know, PowerPoint Um, we've got recipe viewer, Northstar enterprise, Northstar change management, Northstar order entry, all those different brands and some of them intersect and some of them don't.
0: Sure. Absolutely. And I mean, you guys did it right in that, you know you had customers coming to you saying hey if you could build this for me i would buy it right Yep, absolutely. So then you they fund some of that development or the development's easier to budget in because you go there's a guy who's going to buy this right whereas you know on our side of things we were like we had one person that was interested and we were like oh we should do this and then we just went building it and then you know but that there wasn't a customer waiting to buy it on day one. Right. Like we built it and then we jumped into the marketplace uh, from a bootstrap position and just went out and sold. So, uh, you know, kudos to you guys. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it was fun. I, I know you and I talked when we were doing pre-show. It's like it was some of the initial development was funded by this customer because they had a need and and we had the know how. And, you know, like I like I said in, in my my response, less know how than we thought we we had, but you know, we've worked itself out, and sure. um, but it was nice to have a customer that was already there, and they'd be a reference for us, and they'd they parade people through their brand, and and uh, that was that was awesome from the uh, initial uh, initial perspective for sure.
0: And you know, the thing about a POS system is you it, it, everything seems simple at thirty thousand feet, right? Yep. Like you look at any problem and you go, "Well, shoot, if they just did X, Y, and Z, it would be solved."
1: And mm-hmm. then you start
0: thinking on it. And then you go, holy hell! Wait a second. And then with a the POS system, do you have all the security in addition to that? You know, all the all compliance stuff, stuff oh, all the yeah. operational
1: needs, all the finance needs. Yeah, it's it's a mess.
0: Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, I mean that's why. Because I remember back in the day, you know, so remember like the original micros. Like I remember like right ringing up like stuff on those original micros mm-hmm. when they would have those like inserts under the plastic, the yep. buttons and. You know, and all of that stuff was like programmed like in Cobalt or something crazy like that. I don't know what they programmed in, but it wasn't modern because they all were programmed in the late '70s, early '80s. Yep. And then, and then, like in the early 2000s, those guys spent like 10 plus years just grinding through their code, trying to get it to be on a modern architecture, which is probably Windows XP at the time. You know what I mean? Like. Like it was so painful for them because they had written this thing in in a language that was basically dead and it's not easy. And it's definitely not easy when you have millions of registers out there, you know,
1: No, and and um, you know, I mean, I, I think both of us, have, you know, and I know we'll get into some of this, uh, some of this later in our conversation. Is is so many of our of our customers think they have some secret sauce or some some uniqueness about their brand, yeah. and you know, whether it's a legacy point of sale software that they've had, you know, going back to those Microstays or PosiTouch or Aloha. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of it. These guys end up. Um, These guys end up building either their business processes around what their point of sale can do, or they force their point of sale company to come in and 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 do that. You know, early on, back in the late '90s, early 2000s, when when we were working on point of sale systems, I would tell our our team most of these people are first, maybe second time um, point of sale buyers, and so they don't have a lot of Lot of needs because they don't, they're coming from a cash register or they're coming from something that doesn't give them a whole lot. At this point in 2021, these guys have had three, four, five, six point of sale implementations over their career a lot of times. Yeah. So they're looking for something very specific. Thus, the requirements continue to increase because these guys are looking for something, you know, that's going to, that's going to scratch a niche for them. Um, but they also need, you know, I had a customer say this to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, he looks at me and goes, I just needed to do everything. My current point of sale does plus these seven things. It's like, well, <laughs> you realize that you're, you've got, you know, 30 plus years of development in that point of sale that you have. Yeah. And you want it to do these other seven things. Do you understand what that, what you just said to me? Um, yeah. well, that's what I need. And, and come back to me and let me know when you're ready to deliver that to me. And I'm like, you're kidding me. This is crazy.
0: Yeah. Now, Well, it, it's really interesting because in my last job, uh, So I went from like Quiznos and then I left Quiznos. So I used to own this little tech company, right. And we were in the semantic partner channel and we did custom workflow security software. And even though we were small, we had these massive clients and it was so interesting too, because, you know, they were always custom consulting projects and you know, they were like for the world bank and Wells Fargo and visa and all these big companies. And it's so interesting too, because people would come to us, with these needs and they'd be like, well, you got to have these other features and you got to add this. And we were literally just doing this with yesterday with a new prospective client as well. He has this need, right? Uh-huh. what's interesting to me was they would be like, Oh, I got to have this a must have. And we'd be like, and so sometimes when we were young and dumb, we'd be like, Oh, what's well, a must have. We got to do it. Oh, we don't want to piss off the client. Yep. And then, then we realized that that would take us down these gigantic rabbit holes that would end up costing us a lot of money because it's, everything's always harder than you think it's going to be. But then on other issues, like, so then, like, then we wisened up, like later on and a couple of years later, we were like, oh, we can totally do it. It'd be like a $10,000 change order. And then all of a sudden those must have items would start to disappear. Right? Like, they would be like, wait a second, $10,000. I don't have budget for that. Whoa. Okay. No, that's not a must have anymore. We'll just do what you were doing now. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well, and that's, it's funny that you say that because I think across the board, I mean, we've, we've been starting to do the reverse analysis of these must-have features and how many of them are actually still turned on and who actually uses them. Because yeah. at the end of the day, you end up spending all of this time and all of this energy, all of this money going out and building this feature set for people. And then they don't end up using it. You know, they think they, they need it and they've got their idea in their head. It's it's. Uh, but I love the idea that you, you presented, which is at the end of the day, what is the business value? And if it's worth $10,000 to you, then you're willing to pay for it. But you know, no different than I'm getting a pool built in my backyard. Yeah. And amazingly, my kids want the you know, 17 foot high slide and this waterfall that's going to be, you know, that's going to rival the one at the Mirage in Vegas. And then I look at the price tag and I go, well, you don't really get that waterfall and you don't really get that deal because at the end of the day, you might get something nice, but you're not going to, you're not going to afford it all. And, and when you don't put those business rules in front of customers, it makes it tough. And you know, I, we've all made that same mistake as a software company where we started with, uh, started with some, some foolish, uh, Foolish ideas that, that end up locking you into certain things. And you got to go back and take some technical debt and, and you know, re, refactor some of that code to, to make it better.
0: Well, and, and I will say this to the people out there, because you're talking to two guys that are not only building custom software, right? Yep. But are building custom restaurant software. And also part of what makes both of us successful, I would assume, is that we're getting it implemented and used in the locations, which I had one of our clients tell us one time. You know, he's a 19-year-old guy up in Michigan. And he was like, you know, the problem with all the software that we buy is that no one ever helps us get it implemented. They leave it up to us. We biff it every time because we're busy running restaurants. Mm-hmm. And then it's basically garbage. We never use it and we turn it off six months later because we got zero value out of it, right? Absolutely. And- and so, and and I can understand that because I was in big software sales. Like I saw what was happening in Semantic. I saw these salesmen are so highly comped, and you know, software salesmen have screwed us all because nobody trusts anybody in the software world because they've been sold, you know, a book of dreams 50 times and every time it's it's fallen apart on them. But at the same time, you need to listen to people like Jeremy and I when we tell you. You don't need all of this. You're not going to use it or it's going to be too complicated or your team's going to hate it uh, when we tell you those things. Because realistically, what is exactly what you said. We did an analysis to look at what these things that everybody had to have were being used and no one was using them. I can't tell you how many times I've told people this is way too hard. This is way too long. This is way too much. Your team's not going to be able to handle this. You got to start small, you know, you got to then ramp it up over time. And then they go, Nope, we're doing it like this. And then two weeks later, they're doing exactly what I told them to do. You know what I mean? But yet we, we spent all this time and energy together figuring out all this other stuff that they're never going to use. Well, and
1: I, I would say, I also talk about it and I think you, hopefully you would agree with this. Um, Tommy is that, that, um, a lot of times it comes down to there's there's certain things that the product can do really well and the certain things the product you know all products you know all products you know it 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 typically is not about the product it's really about did you get executive buy-in Do you really know what you're trying to do? And do you have the right partner to help you implement it? Because without those things, you're not going to, you're, you're going to get busy running the restaurant. You're going to get busy, you know, running the expo line, or you're going to get busy greeting guests because at the end of the day, you know, the software project is, is probably not your number one priority, but you've got to get sponsorship. You've got to get a good partner to help you implement it. That's been there and done that because, um, because, because at the end of the day, that is more critical than anything else.
0: Yeah. And the software is there to enable you to make better decisions. Well, and PLS software is there to enable transactions and to put some security around it and to hold people sort of accountable to using the system so we don't get money stolen from us. And, you know, so it's a little bit different than like my software, which is more of, you know, uh, operational based. But at the end of the day, what we're really doing is, you know, cause you could have, I mean, let's be honest, people were eating in restaurants during Jesus's time and they didn't have any of this stuff and they yep. were making it happen. You know, absolutely. You ordered from a lady, she brought you a bowl of mush and then you ate it and you threw some gold coins or a chicken at her and you took off.
1: Right? <laughs> so, I love that. I love that concept. That's funny. Yeah,
0: but you didn't need all this stuff, but the POS system specifically, which I love about it <laughs> is that you force people to use it So we can keep track of the money, which is obviously super important. But of all the software systems that you sell, the POS system is the one thing that people have to use. Everything else is kind of like, they choose to use it if they want. But the idea behind all the other systems are the data. Uh If you you use the system, then you'll get the data and the data will allow you to make better decisions in the future about everything you do. And it will allow you to track everything else down. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So here, real quick, let's talk inventory for a second. So, um, I used to implement a system called food co five back in the nineties. Okay. Uh, you know, and I remember, th- and so and I, and now that system I implemented, it was like, you know, old PCs, they're still around by the way, but you know, basically you had to get every item in your order guide in the damn thing. And you had to build every recipe and then you had to make sure that everybody was bringing everything up and then also tracking all the waste and then basically and then if you did your counts and you did everything at the end of the day you would, at the end of the week you get a theoretical inventory and the idea was is that if everything had been tracked through the register and all the recipes were correct and you did your initial count correctly then we could present you with this is what you should have and then inventory was, was like easier right uh-huh. Go in and check off and say, Oh, wait, I have wait, I have too much of this or too little of that or whatever. And then you would be able to kind of figure out over time, wait a second, people were stealing stakes because I should have twelve stakes left and I have eight stakes, you know.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean and and I think I mean, I think even going back to your your commentary, and I I laugh when I coach people on theoretical inventory yeah. because it's like you know, your actual inventory is what did you buy versus what did you use versus what's left sitting on the shelf? Yeah. That's that's your actual food cost. Like, you know, yeah. what you can say what you sold all you want. But theoretically, when you sell a New York strip, one should get taken out of the out of the walk in and get thrown on the grill and okay. be used. Um, when you go to do your count and you you know, you've sold 10, but there's 11 gone from the from the freezer. um I don't know what to tell you, you know, what? at the end of the day, you either miscut your stakes because you're, you know, because you bought in bulk and you, and you didn't weigh them properly or somebody walked away or they, they wasted one and they didn't put it through the system to yeah. do that. And um, I, I, I do find that people conflate the idea of theoretical inventory with actual inventory costs. Actual inventory is what did I start with? What did I add through purchases? What did I count at the end? my Delta is what it is that, that I have. Um, and there is no, you know, I guess, unless you forgot to receive an invoice or something like that, there is no, you know, there's not a lot of wiggle room there. The theoretical is really where you run into those challenges where to your point, did I over portion, did I under portion, did something get up, you know, get legs and walk away. That's really where people, I don't want to say struggle because typically you're not hiring the most, um, you know, the, the most computer savvy people, you're not hiring the people within the restaurant. They just figure out how to make the guests happy because that, it's the hospitality industry. After all, they're doing what they can to take care of the customer and don't necessarily. Oh, I got to go check this off a little list that says I, I you know, I burned that steak and, and I'm not going to do it. Um, and so, again, these these go back to operational processes that you need to do. But I think I think in the end, technology is an enabler. You can do inventory with a with a sheet of paper. And a pen and pencil, you know, um, you don't necessarily have to have a computerized system to do these things. You could do it. You know, you've been doing it since the 80s or doing it since the 70s with, um, you know, Lotus one, two, three or even sheets of paper um, where you're doing physical counts and saying, you know what? I sold 25 stakes and I should have 25 missing from the from the walk in. And there's 26 missing. What happened to it?
0: Yeah. Well, I talked to I talked to an inventory guy one time and he was saying we have tried everything in the world. And there's nothing faster than one guy calling one guy writing down and having, you know, on paper,
1: uh-huh. you know what I
0: mean? There's just nothing faster than that. We can't,
1: Absolutely. you know? yeah.
0: now for that liquor, there's that one liquor bar liquor company, right. That they have the bottles. Yep. And so, you know, you say like tequila and then you have the Patron bottle and then you just drag your finger up and down basically where the line is, you know, but even that, is slower because you have to go you have to go search patron you know unless you've got a sheet to shelf but then that requires sheet to shelf's great in the storage room it's great when you have labels and everything but in the bar people just you know when it's busy and someone goes and grabs a case of wine and they just throw it they slam it in there you know what i mean where it goes that second so i don't know I have a buddy, uh, he's the restaurant boss. His name's Ryan Romfin, and he, he mostly works with unit operators. He's actually down in Austin. Now he moved from so- SoCal to Austin. And his whole thing is just do a, like a rolling four week average of your like uh food purchases to sales and just use that. Like the amount of time and hassle you'll save from doing that is you're going to be dead on, you know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. if it starts to look high because your purchases are higher than your sales. Then you might need to start digging in and trying to figure out where that's coming from. But in the short term, you know, don't because you know those guys that do. I mean, if you remember, like, I used to have the inventory that PF Chang's. Yep. And like, and I just had to do the front of the house of the PF Chang's. I didn't have to do the kitchen, thank God. It would be there at like one or two in the morning, you know, counting liquor bottles all over the place.
1: It's definitely. Uh, I mean, and and that's the hardest part. I mean, you know, I talk about it on my podcast. Is is you know, it's you got to figure out a way to manage labor and you got to figure out a way to manage your your food costs because those are your two highest costs within the restaurant industry. And so, you know, use technology as an enabler. Don't use it as a hindrance.
0: Yeah. But
1: to your point, if you don't manage it or if you don't set up the systems properly, you're going to end up burning out your team. Um, and oftentimes the net benefit of uh, of actually doing that inventory doesn't end up equating to what uh, potentially could have gotten up and walked away in the form of theft or, or over portioning or underportioning,
0: sure. And you know, well, that's really interesting. So, did you, so I guess the point and that, that we kind of disparage inventory systems. But does your inventory system do anything that's like revolutionary?
1: Um, Not necessarily revolutionary. I mean, it, it'll allow you to scan the the box, it'll allow you to count, you know, a lot of times you'll have different pack sizes. You know, yeah. I need I need three cases of chicken breast plus, you know, three individuals and a lot of inventory systems make you say each chicken breast you know, box has 26 chicken breasts times three, you know, plus the three. And they, they end up screwing those things up. Um, so that thing's a uniqueness. The fact that you've got um, the ability to scan the boxes so you're easily getting, you know, you've got a tablet that you can walk into the walk in with scan the box so that uh it pulls up what that item is so they're not having to type in patrone but they use the scanner on the back of the tablet um nice part is is the the technology's gotten good enough to the point that uh you don't necessarily have to have wi-fi you know a lot of times they, yeah. they the, the tablets didn't have the ability to store anything locally on um on the on you know they didn't have have the ability to store anything locally on the tablet and so you'd go into the walk-in and you'd lose wi-fi and when you lost wi-fi you know, all hell will break loose, but um, uh, that that's really nice. So you can scan the box, be able to go walk up, scan it, type in what it is, and and use the multiple pack sizes. Um, so I don't know from a revolutionary perspective, the last piece that that most inventory systems have nowadays that's pretty critical is a connection to the warehouse. So whether you're ordering from U.S. Foods or you're ordering from Cisco, it comes in, and I go to their website and go order. And it pulls that purchase order into the system. So when the invoice actually comes in, I can receive it. I can short receive it. You know, a case of lettuce fell off the back of the truck before it got there. You can receive it without that case of lettuce and it'll either create a new PO for it or or whatnot. But uh, not, you know, I mean, I don't know that it's revolutionary, but um, it does allow you to do that. And then lastly, <laughs> lastly, talking about your theoretical It does allow you to do things like yields and wastes and, you know, I can have positive yields and negative yields on certain products that are getting distributed into the finished goods. So when I go ring up a New York strip with, you know, big potato and, and, um, you know, green beans, it's going to decrement eight ounces out of New York strip, but you know, eight ounces is really closer to 10 because you got all of the, you know, if you buy a full, full loin, you've got to shave off all the, um, you know, shave off all of the, the, um fat and those kind of things. And so um it does allow you to do those yields or positive yields when I'm taking that same that same piece piece of steak and putting it in chili. Now it knows to do do the opposite with it.
0: That's great. Yeah. I mean and those are nice. I, I thought the biggest one from my perspective and just remembering back to my days in the kitchen, which were a while ago, was you know the fact is is that you buy chicken breasts from Cisco, right? And some mm-hmm. one week they come in individual rack for whatever reason and then the next week they come into a giant bag with 50 chicken breasts in there and they were always repacking them and if the system didn't allow for the different portion like you needed to get to just this is eight pounds of chicken you know Uh what i mean because and it might be eight individual it might be eight one pound breasts or it could be 16 you know whatever like you know eight ounce breasts and it just that was always so hard to manage when the system was very linear. And and I felt like those early inventory systems were very much I feel like they they, you know, they didn't really get used very well because they were kind of just hard to use.
1: Yeah. Well, and and they used to be to the point that how I purchased it is how I had to receive it. And there yeah. was no substitutions and there was no different pack sizes. I couldn't enter multiple pack sizes into something. Um, and anymore, they've all gotten to the point where I can I can ring them, you know I can do ounces, I can do pounds. I can do boxes, I can do eaches all on the same inventory you know, um, sheet while I'm counting those things and I'm calling them out to the guy that's entering them into the system or putting them into the tablet or, or however they're actually getting those things back into back into what they're doing.
0: Sure. So let's ask I'm staying on software. You guys have a scheduling module, right?
1: Uh, we we integrate with with multiple scheduling modules and um, have built out scheduling modules, but uh, at the end of the day, we've realized that the best of breed of of the likes of uh, you know Hot Schedules and Seven Shifts and Time Forge and a lot of these different partners out there, they just really own that, and so we just make it part of uh, core to what we do, um, and it's inexpensive enough that it just I don't want to say it makes sense for for them to just uh, for them to to integrate these third parties, and it just becomes core to part of the point of sale.
0: So you're the time clock, you're the data. We're the
1: time clock, exactly. And then they just enforce it and allow them to manage it outside. Because one of the other things that we're finding a lot with customers, especially the customers that we work with, is they have, um, you know, especially with the labor shortage, there's a lot of different people that are working multiple jobs at multiple stores you know sure. so i might go to go to store a today and store b tomorrow they need to be able to manage those schedules across the different stores they also need to be able to manage their overtime and and overtime projections and who gets the who gets the 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 overtime hours is it the guy that that the home store is at the requesting store you know what happened with all of that and basic point of sale single store functionality doesn't really exist but a lot of those third parties that i've mentioned earlier do that and um very, very familiar with it and have worked with a lot of clients to help them understand what their business needs are and either request them or implement them as part of their their scheduling tools that they're building in. Nice.
0: Cool. I think we're down number one.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. I I know. I'm like, I feel like I'm ranting and i I just looked at the yeah. sheet. I'm like, I don't know how the heck we're gonna get through all, all of our questions, but uh but right. I'll let you keep doing your thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hope I
1: hope it's valuable for you. I don't I don't know if this is what you're what you're hoping uh, for.
0: Absolutely, man. I run a tight ship around here. This is a very, (laughs) you know, super professional podcast. (laughs) Uh, What is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now?
1: Um, Internal to our business, um, our big project, um, internal to the businesses, we're in the middle of re-implementing a new CRM and ERP platform. Um, to really get Salesforce automation and and using some of the new AI tools that exist out in the world integrated with our CRM so we know who we're talking to and make sure that we're delivering value to the customers. So that's the internal project we're working on. Um, as far as a customer project, uh, we're in the midst of two or three RFPs for some uh, multi-state brands and trying to make sure that uh, our software f- will fulfill their needs.
0: Sure. RFPs are the worst.
1: Yeah, they're 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 not the most fun and you never know what uh what they're looking for and the questions are oftentimes super vague and you're like, okay, you know, and they didn't ask, can you do this and this and this and this all at the same time? They just asked, Can you do all of those things? And so it's like, well, we can do them all, you know, we can do these three together or these two together or these six together. Um, but you know, those are tough. But I Ironically, I, I alluded to one of the clients, Cheesecake Factory. They were one of the hardest RFPs. I think it was 160 pages that we had to fill out mm-hmm. um, in order to get into that brand, and and uh, it lasted a really, really long time. And um, fortunately enough for us, we uh, we were able to acquire the customer, customer and keep them uh, keep them happy for over 20 years.
0: That's wonderful. I- So when I was in the Chang's world, it was PF Chang's and Cheesecake were the two Southern California, Arizona brands that had just been blowing it up at the same time. And it was just these high volume, super busy restaurants. And we actually, we've talked, we've been talking to Cheesecake Factory for the last couple of years actually about our platform as well.
1: Got yeah. Yeah, we're actually working on Chang's uh, as we speak. We we've uh, we put our Northstar product into their to-go concepts, and so they've got it. They've got their new to-go concepts. I don't know if you've uh, if you've heard much about it, but PF Chang's to-go is really a. It's the same PF Chang's menu that they sell in the bistros, but they're doing it really to fill the. Uh, ironically, and they started this before COVID nineteen and before all of the shutdowns, but it's really primarily they've got maybe ten seats in the dining room. Um, so it's a full PF Chang's menu, but their primary order of order of operation is through third party. So either either through their online ordering platform or their third party, you know, DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, and they're going into some high density Chicago, New York, DC, um, you know, Philly, those kind of areas, and people can come and either do takeout or have delivery of you know, high quality PF Chang's food, but not necessarily with a huge footprint where you've got a eight or ten thousand square foot uh, restaurant. And you got to you got to seat that every night.
0: Yeah, that's what Payway was supposed to be. Yep. And they, Yeah. Payway. They we kind of biffed it. Yep. And then they they sold Payway off, and then um, you know, but that's what really a Payway was supposed to be was the quick service Chang's. And I, uh, I hate to say this, but I have a Payway like right across the street from my house. Yep, And um, they always forget something. I just, yeah, I
1: struggle with them, too. We used to go there weekly when they first launched in Southern California. And every single one of the stores um, before I moved here, every single one of the stores closed, save one that was within a 50-mile radius of my house. Um, and that store still operate, operates quite well. But um, the, our first, I was like, oh, there's Payway. We're in Dallas. Let's let's go hit some Payway. And it was not the same as it was, you know, you know, a number of years ago when they first launched it. And I don't know anybody there and I'm not bagging on, It's just my customer experience as a consumer and my family. It was like, well, maybe we shouldn't uh, maybe we shouldn't rush to go back there, which is a shame because I think they did a fantastic job initially. Um, and the to go concept they're, they're they've got um, two open in Dallas now and a third one coming uh, later in the year. And um, I have ordered takeout from there and it's been quite good.
0: Well, yeah, because the Chang's recipes are like, they're so good. Now, yes. I will say the kung pao chicken at Pei Wei. I do like the carrots that were thrown in there, but like, you know, other than that,
1: that's uh, funny. That's but, funny. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that. That's very, very true. And I'm, I, uh, I but I would agree with you. And so, um, so yeah, back to back to your point on the RFP side, yeah. working with PF Chang's. Um, their needs are, are pretty severe. I mean, they've got 300 stores cause now at this point we're, we're starting to engage in, in talking about the bistros and you yeah. know, they've been happy with, uh, happy with what we've done for the month to go side.
0: Well, yeah, and, and I would say to the, to the, the software purchasers out there is that like, we all know that the guy you want wrote the RFP nine times out of 10, right? The first yeah, guy yeah. who got there said who was selling you on their platform. And then you, then you go, well, you know, we have to do an RFP. We have to evaluate three different companies. So then that guy helps write the RFP. Then he writes it or she writes it for the benefits of their platform, trying to highlight their, you know, what they do really well versus what everybody else does. Absolutely. Then, you know, you spend all this time going through all this work and then, you know, I mean, we actually turned down the Chick-fil-A RFP. We just told them we didn't want to do it because yep. we knew that they had already built an internal system and that basically their RFP process was just really research and development for their internal platform. Because they basically have a company that got founded to build their platform. So they go out and get all the best features from everybody else's platform. They go, oh, I want this. I want that. <laughs> yeah. They-
1: rebuild it back into their platform. Absolutely. So we're, yeah.
0: now we're at a point where like, Serious software companies, are like at least we and I don't know how serious we are, but I definitely tell you, like, we will turn these things down if we don't think we even have a close shot. But like, you know. That's yeah. funny
1: that you say that because i we've experienced that before in some of those largest brands. I I had one of my account executives the other day. He's like, Oh, I think I have an in it. You know, I don't remember what it was Burger King or something. Okay. And I'm like, Well, let me just let me just tell you, you know, lots of careers have died trying to go after something like that, man. Because yeah. at the end of the day you know, you might be able to be a one hit wonder going after that thing, but it's going to sink you and the rest of the organization trying to build all other features. And at the end of the day, they're probably, you know, their it department is bigger than our whole company. So, yeah. um, so yeah, you know, you, you tell me if you want to continue to do that. Cause they, they could make one decision and bankrupt us tomorrow.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, and it was funny cause we talked to McDonald's one time and they were interested in talking to us, but they're like, you know that we destroy companies like you all the time. Yep. Like our hierarchy needs alone are going to break your brain. You know what I mean? Like there is no, you know what I mean? So like you, you gotta like, you gotta be weary of this. Like we're not for everybody. You know what I mean? Like you, you've got to, um, you've got to figure that out for yourself. So you know what I mean? Like, so. As in just-
1: yeah, no, absolutely. Um, absolutely.
0: All right. Then number three, what is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Um.
1: It's probably the same as it always has been, which is getting the right people that, that care for our customers and can, can solve people's problems. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we really are a group of, uh, of people that, um, you know, that, that, that want to take care of customers, customers and want to, you know, we bought, we do bring a lot of people onto the team that have been in the hospitality industry that have worked in restaurants. So that's always a good start if you were able to be successful at the restaurant side, but, um you know, talent acquisition. I mean, you go look at, uh, you even go look at, you know, the likes of Apple and Facebook and some of these really, really big companies. And you ask what takes, what it takes to continue to be successful and be on the top. And it's at the end of the day, it's getting the right people. Um, and it's only been exacerbated with the whole COVID thing. And so many of the rules have changed as to what you should or shouldn't do. And as a leader, I look at it and go, you know what? Um, I can't do what I need to do without my team. Um, they can't do what they need to do without my leadership, um, and without these customer connections, but it, it really comes back to getting the right people on your team that can, uh, can solve customers' problems and really take care of stuff.
0: Yeah. And it, that's such, it's so interesting because, you know, as you start growing, you start to realize, wow, man, I, do yeah, one bad hire, like just the time, the money, you know, like everything about it, you just you don't realize how much it costs.
1: Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Or how much? Um, you know, one of our, our CTO is great. He's been fantastic, um, uh, and at talking to me about it because it's like they have this whole concept, and I'm sure you've heard of this. And, and if you don't even employ it within your own organization, it's this whole idea of a 10x developer, where you know, you can get two mediocre developers that are gonna, you know, gonna do the job that you need them to do, but oftentimes when you get that one key player that can that can move the needle on a software project, he can end up, you know, truly driving 10x what anybody else could. And so if I get two or three 10x people, it's 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 worth as many as you know, 20 or 30 um, you know, average programmers.
0: Oh. Well, well absolutely. And I mean, just in development specifically, like. You know we've tried india we have had ukraine you know we've gone all around the world getting developers in here but like there's there's like and now with these code camps too oh um, man like you know you get these kids out of these code camps and they want a hundred thousand dollars a year and they barely know how to write code yep but you get that one guy like this is like they're like this is a 10x developer i need a i need a report builder and they go cool i'll make you a report builder and then they just go do it yep that's yep, a no, 10X absolutely. developer. They they can go and research it. They can go find the best libraries. They can go look at the database. They can figure everything out for you, and then go build your report builder. And yeah, that-
1: and make it scalable and understand you know what's coming <laughs> yeah. around the corner. They're not writing this one off piece of code that nobody else yeah. can understand. Exactly. Yeah, it, we had it. We had a situation where we had some legacy stuff where you know we'd had a whole bunch of people look through this this uh, this code that we had done and. Um, you know, it was, it was the ability to deploy menus to a hundred stores at a time at one time. And, you know, and, uh, it was this whole deal of, you know what, it's still going to take three minutes per store. So as you exponentially grow, it's going to continue to, to go up, you know, um, you know, five minutes a store. And so if I got 100 stores, it's going to take 500 minutes to deploy all of the menus, whatever the number was. I don't even remember. Yep. And I'd had six, seven, eight developers look at it. Now, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do to optimize. There's nothing we can do to optimize it. Had one of these 10x developers. And within a, a, a week, they had it down to one-tenth of the time that those guys had done. And it wasn't exponential because of something that they they did. And you look at that and go, you know what? That makes all the difference to the customer experience. That makes all of the difference to what your product can do. That makes all of the difference long term, as uh, as you go out into the field. Because again, you you know you talked about it earlier that the, the customer experience also has to be really good. You know you got to have good implementation. You got to have good developers, but you also have to have a good guest experience. And if you don't have a good guest experience, no different than in the restaurants they'll stop using your software. And if they stop using their software, when your, when your bill comes due next month or next year, they're going to go, yeah, we're not paying that bill. We're not using that anymore.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You 10X developers call me. <laughs>
1: yeah. They're hard to find and hard to keep, keep, uh keep happy. But uh if you can continue to, to, to work with them and uh, appreciate them, they're, they're, they're worth their weight in gold.
0: Well, and our big benefit was up until COVID was you can work from home, man. Just get your mm-hmm. sit in your house. You know, a yeah. developer lives on a lake. You know, he just stares out the window at the lake all day. He's cranking out code, you know, and it's like wonderful. And now COVID's ruined that. That was my one competitive engine <laughs> in hiring was you could stay at home and now it's gone. That's uh, funny. <laughs> uh, cool. See, we're cranking. Uh, what is the one thing you, that you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't?
1: Um, I thought that they. I thought. I mean, and, and and it's hard to say because COVID has accelerated it. Yeah. But I did expect that there would be more purely digital restaurant groups where there is no human interaction at this point in twenty twenty one other than the people potentially making your food. I didn't think robotics would get there, but I fully expected that you were going to be able to come in, sit down, order from your phone, have the food get brought to you, and that's the majority of the interaction that you had within that brand. If you would have asked me 10 years ago where this thing was going, I, I genuinely thought that the, the, the phone that you have in your pocket, and not that you can't find a brand that does that today, so don't don't take it that way, I just expected that the adoption would have been farther along. And I and I think had COVID not happened two years ago or a year and a half ago, we'd still be on that same trajectory, which is a slower trajectory. COVID has definitely accelerated it. But I still thought that there would be more people sitting down at their at the table, scanning a QR code or some way identifying where they are and going through the full guest experience from their phone. And that just hasn't happened. That just hasn't happened in... Um, you know, from a from a long-term perspective.
0: My expectation would be that that's where the chilies and the Applebee's and the uh, Red Robins of the world, mm-hmm. we're gonna go. Yep. Because you're already, I mean, they're one step closer because we're scanning the menus, right? Because because yep. like, I thought Ziosk personally, and I don't know anyone in Ziosk, and don't take offense fancy this, but I thought it was out of date the minute it was launched. Because they launched it, I mean, they were probably R&Ding it when smartphones and tablets were being invented in the background, and obviously they take advantage of tablets. Yeah. But like, I just thought to myself, well, why are we doing this? Why, why would we pay all this money to have this piece of equipment on the table that's gonna break? Kids are gonna knock it over. Blah 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 blah. You know, it's the same thing like Buffalo Wild Wings had those tablets forever. Yep. And, I'm like, and the kids loved them. But then I was going to disappear because they realized it's not worth the headache of having, you know, 10 grand in tablets here, you know, when people all have their phones and they're all, these kids are all coming with their tablets. So I agree with you. And, you know, I just don't see like, just, I remember running a PF change, which was like a $7 million a year restaurant. The one that I managed the front of the house at, Yep. you know, we had on a busy on a night when we were always pretty busy. I think we were running 12 servers you know, uh, six bussers, six food runners, four hostesses, you know, and like, and it was a constant battle every day, two o'clock, who's no calling, no showing, who am I going to get in here to fill these spots? And I just was thinking to myself, same same thing you were saying is if we could just dump the servers out of that model, that was my biggest headache was the servers, right? They were always no calling, no showing. Yeah. And if I could just do that on my phone, First of all, people order more on their phones. I got that from my, uh, one of our clients. They're like, yeah, because they don't feel like they're being judged, right? They wanna try four different things. They'll order on their phone because no one's gonna judge them. Whereas they, they worry that the waiter's going, wow, you're gonna eat that much? That's like, you know, whatever. And then like, you could get everything you want. You can know all your allergies, you know, all that stuff. And then just have food runners and bussers. Mm-hmm. Food runners delivering food, bussers clearing tables when you're done. And that's what we saw when we were in Europe. We would go to these giant bars at the size of a Chili's or a P.F. Chang's. And you'd go to the bar, you'd order your food, just like a QSR, but it had alcohol. And then, you know, occasionally a bartender would swing by and go, hey, you want some more drinks? And they had no labor. You know, they three or four people were in front of the house. Totally.
1: Yep. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, and and again, um, well, and and in Europe, at least from my experience, a lot of times that's because you're – sitting in a place like this but you're also going to the counter to order and then um you're going to the counter to order and then they're bringing your food you know the runners i personally think that technology is going to take that over and i think long term it's going to get to the place where there's some form of nfc chip or something some piece of technology that's going to know who you are when you sit down at table 23 where you're not even going to have to do that it's going to you know, get you a, 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 notification on your device that says, Hey, I see that you're sitting in the, in the chilies in Plano. Yeah. Um, you want to pull up the menu and then you go through your guest experience on your own that way.
0: Yeah. And I just, I mean, I just think where we're going is it's going to be fast food, QSR, um, that, the, that the, what fit what we would call family dining is going to be more like QSR and if mm-hmm. you're an actual waiter, you're going to go to a fancy restaurant. Yep. No, um, I would agree. Because there's just, you know, we're raising, we're creating, you know, we're making everything so much more expensive. More expensive to have cooks, more expensive to have waiters, more expensive to do all this stuff, and nobody wants to work. So the restaurants just can't. They're just going to have to use technology to scale that out, and and it's just where it's going to go. So I agree with you completely on that. Okay, so I'm going to ask you one more. We have two more questions, but I I do want to know. Is my new question that I've been asking everybody is. What do you think makes a great hospitality company? What traits do you see from your clients that make them great?
1: Um, I think it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes back to hiring the right people, like we talked about for our own organization and training them well, building into their business process, the idea that the guests, know the guest is the guest and the guest needs to be served um but also training them on what to deal with training them on how to serve that guest because every guest is going to be different every guest is going to need something different um i actually had a a a book um i don't remember exactly this guy named todd duncan um uh let me look it up real quick but it was it was a book about um about uh, a brand in southern california um where um the author asked for an egg on his on his burger and he knew that that the restaurant had eggs and he knew that uh, you know because they had a waffle and egg special and and then they had had a burger and he he wanted um um he wanted he wanted this egg on um yeah, it was the six thousand dollar egg is what it, what the book is called
0: yeah
1: uh have you read that book by, by chance
0: no but i've heard i've seen a similar book to it i think with service it sells i think it's...
1: okay yeah yeah i've read service it sells and so he would talk about going into this brand where he would go every friday night with his wife for dinner and you know where he came up with the $6,000 is he was spending $500 a month and so in a year he was going to spend, you know, $6,000 a year and because they wouldn't put an egg on his burger um when they had the capability to do it and and you know we've all dealt with this experience where and and I'm not talking disparaging about the spring it was just it comes back to to your question about hospitality which is that staff member needed to be trained to understand what they we're able to do to solve that customer's experience. And I tell a very true story on the opposite side. There was another, another brand. My wife and I were out, um, out having date night and this brand, um, at the time she was having some, some intolerance issues with gluten. And so we'd gone, it was fine dining steakhouse. They'd asked, you know, is there any allergies at the table? She's like, I don't, you know, I'm not really eating gluten. I'm having some problems with my stomach with it. Um, they said, okay, well, we've got gluten-free bread and um you know so they, they brought regular bread for me and and they were about to bring gluten-free bread for her and they didn't have any gluten-free bread it, it, it had run out and so um she's like okay no problem I, you know don't worry about it well 10 minutes later the server shows back up with gluten free bread and we looked at him and we said i think you guys were out he goes well you told me you wanted gluten-free bread and so i went down to the store and picked up some gluten-free bread so that you would have gluten-free bread with your dinner that to me is a a very big differentiator in hospitality. And I don't expect everybody to go to that level. And yes, we were spending 40 or $50 for a steak at that that you know date night. But I can tell you, I've told that story of that level of hospitality at least 100 times to my staff, to, to people that we work with, because it's very different. And the opposite happened for this author on the $6,000 egg, where the staff member said, well, our policy is not to mix up our recipes. And so um, unfortunately, we're not allowed to do that. Instead of saying, I'm sorry, sir, we're, you know, whatever the reason is that they didn't want to do it or guess what? You were able to do it and the guy was willing to pay for it, the waffle and egg special and the burger. So it wasn't a money thing. It was really a our policy says we're not allowed to put, a, put an egg on a burger.
0: But, you know, what's interesting is that. Well, so I had an experience like that one time, too, where and I was the waiter at P.F. Chang's and, and one by my house in Highlands Ranch, Colorado, uh, Park Meadows Mall where I was waiting tables there before I started grad school. So I had quit my day job and I was just going to wait tables the summer before grad school started and get a little scratch in my pocket, you know, and uh, someone wanted butter for their rice. And I, I ran over to a champions next door in the parking lot. And I said, Hey, I'm a P.F. Chang's. Can I just get a ramekin and butter? I'll bring the ramekin back. And I was able to do that. And, you know, I got like a 30% tip because of it. And it was like for a kid or something, you know, because they don't have butter and Chang's. Yep. So it was just one of those dumb things. But that's, that was that change mentality where they were totally cool with it. And I was gone for maybe 45 seconds. You know what I mean? Like I literally sprinted across. Can I get a ramekin of butter? I work next door. They were like, sure, you know, and it was fine. And it was a totally good thing and I made a great tip out of it. And I did create one of those wow experiences for someone. But I, I do think what's happened is, and I was interviewing the HR person for Torchy's Tacos. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, yeah, Elizabeth's, yeah, Elizabeth's awesome.
0: Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, she's the best. And yeah. she's like talking about how when they're hiring, they're looking at the makeup of the store and what personality type do we need to fill out the team, all this stuff. And I was remember thinking, what? Well, first of all, they're a great company and they've created the ability to have the luxury to do that, right? So because they have high AUVs, because they pay people well, because they invest in their teams, because they have a great culture, because they give out free tacos to everyone, They're in a position where they can actually look at their applicants and go, is this guy a right personality fit for our team? And is this guy going to work out? And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I remember at RPF Chang's, people would get fired because they no call, no show. And it was always like between two and four every day. It was the worst part of my day. And then I would literally just go grab a stack of applications from the back. And I would literally just start calling numbers. You still need a job? Come on in. You still need a job? Come on in. And like, that was it like we weren't like we weren't we weren't ever in a position because of the high volume we were doing just we were never in a position to really stop and do it right you know what i mean and also that falls on when you're giving that to the managers versus having an hr department that might be centrally hiring that's another issue because the managers are too damn busy trying to run the restaurant to actually do an effective job of interviewing and hiring and blah 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 blah. And in, in most cases at least in our case that was true Mm -hmm. and it was horrible so we never were getting the right team members we were just getting whoever we could get and then you know it was kind of like well we're going to throw the dart at the board 50 times and if if 12 of them work out for six months we're golden and then we'll start restaffing after that so yeah yeah, no i I
1: mean i think it's i think it's critical and and uh, you know i i happen to go to torchies on a regular basis and and know their team and and it's critical to their continued success and i find um but i i but i want to i want to bring our audience back to your comment that your manager allowed you to go next door to go get that can of butter to make that guest experience for those people. You were trained that says it's okay to go to color outside the lines within, within um you were either trained or just, you're just that good of a server, but you were able to do that. Um And I think the best brands, when it talks to to hospitality allow people to understand where can they color outside the lines in order to make that guest experience. Um, I don't know if you've read the book, um, by the guy that, that, that really made, um, the Ritz Carlton, Ritz Carlton kind of sing, but it's a, it's a fantastic, um, exercise in really what they allow people at the Ritz Carlton to do to, um, to continue to, to create those types of wow experiences. And yes, they, you know, they do charge three, four five, $600 a night for a hotel room and, and all of that, but they also, um, deliver things at such a high level that you are able to build a brand and charge those, those types of prices. Um, to be able to get that so then you you know it's a it's a perpetual cycle upwards of getting good people understanding what they can do and being able to drive that guest experience which ultimately is why people go out and choose to eat at your restaurants or or choose to dine with you choose to stay at your hotel all of those kind of things
0: well and i worked at a mall called the grove in los angeles and i opened mall. it's a very famous mall in hollywood and it's owned by this great real estate development company and it truly is a unique place right And I was one of the opening concierges there. And we went through that Ritz Carlton training and we were empowered to do all that stuff. And we actually, this is in 2002, we actually won the Wall Street Journal Award for best non-traditional concierge desk in the country at this mall because because we did take such good care of people and this lady secret shopped all these places around the world and we won because we were getting our plane reservations and all kinds of crazy stuff, you know? And, yep. uh, and so yeah. Well, and,
1: and the guy that owns that mall, I don't know if you ever worked with Rick, but he oh, is yeah, Rick. Rick is not only an amazing businessman, but uh, his attention to detail, we've got some customers in the Grove and and um, uh, it's funny because one of our customers is the guys of Blue Ribbon Sushi in the in the Grove. I don't know if they yeah. were there when they were still there. But uh, at times we'll get calls from from the, the Blue Ribbon people saying Rick wants something. But again, he's created something that is unique and different. Um, that people are willing to spend a little bit more money for. They're willing to to fight through LA traffic, driving down, you know, Fairfax to get to yeah. that mall, um, you know, to to get to that mall, to be able to go go deliver that experience that you're talking about. And, you know, really back to your question, what do you really want to stand for? What do you want people to walk away and remember? What do you want people when they leave your restaurant establishment to say to their friends? Because we've all heard those statistics of the amount of people that, from a bad experience, how many people you tell. And the flip side is also true.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, we could talk about the Grove forever. Cause like I was literally there during construction. I know Rick really well. Like, you know, we did the Christmas special from the Grove on, you know, I mean, it was crazy. And it is, it it was his attention to detail. And then they were the first mall ever to do that level of service that you would get in a Ritz Carlton. And like, you know, someone ripped their pants on a bench. We bought them a new pair of pants. Like we were truly creating something that was like insane. But that's also why that Apple store, like in 2002, was doing 30, $45 million a year when the average was like five or 10 million. You know what I mean? Because people just came. and Also, they had a huge advantage too because of obviously being in LA and everybody was buying max. But anyway, yeah, so we could talk about the Grove forever. But yeah, that but that yep. is empowering people, which was what PF Changs did. It's what the Grove did. It's what the Rich Carlton does to deliver great service. and and explain to them that because part of that too is understanding how does this business actually work where is the money coming from right Mm -hmm. and and understanding how do you put take care of a guest and it doesn't matter you don't have to be high-end to do that you can be mcdonald's and do that it doesn't matter you know yep
1: and it comes back to leadership but but again i i think i think it's important for people to understand that uh you as the owner of the restaurant that you that you're running or you as the, the CEO of this restaurant brand that's got you know 20, 30, 40 stores, you have a you have the ability to make a difference. Um you have a, the ability to make a difference in the life of those guests. And if everything is it, you know goes back to that guest experience and, and and training to make sure that those people can can deliver on what your brand promises and who you want to be.
0: Absolutely. All right cool. I do yeah, we're on the page, same uh, we're on the same page with that for sure. So it's war story time. Give me a funny war story, some cringeworthy. Ah, I can't believe this happened type event. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: it's funny. I was just uh, I was just at a ball game the other day with my son, um, and uh, one of the longest weeks or two weeks of my life was when we went in to go do the Enron Field down in Houston. So we had sold um, sold the whoever the food service provider was at the time. Um, and it's not important to the story necessarily, but this is in the early days of tablets where you might go order at a table and they just opened up this gorgeous stadium. I think it was in 2002, 2003, sometime in that time frame. there's not iPads. There's not all of this, this, this technology out there. And so we'd gone to Belgium and, um, we'd gone to Belgium and worked with this Belgian hardware manufacturer to, to use this technology. Again, it was before Wi-Fi, and it was using these RF signals that that uh, that were down there. And so we'd sold this brand these ability to go order and pay at the seats at a restaurant, like like you might uh, um, not at a restaurant but at the at the stadium. Wow. and um, and so it was really, really cool. and and so we got it all installed and I go down to go do this install and everything's working great through training and everything's working great through you know the first inning or so. Um, and then sometime in the second or third inning, everything just stops working and you can't figure it out. And so you you stay all night, the game gets over at nine or, nine or 10 o'clock at night and then you sit, everybody leaves the stadium and, and everything starts working again. And so we're frustrated. And I, I mean, I worked over 120 hours that week trying to figure it out. Um, and I was just telling, like I said, I was just telling my son the story last week um, of, of that experience. And come to find out later, we flew some people in from Belgium that had developed these tablets. And at the end of the day, they were running on the same frequency that Houston Cellular was running on at the time. And so you get all of these people that walk into the, you know, Houston Cellular later got bought by by Singular who later got bought by AT&T. But at the time we had no idea because you know it was all this new wireless technology stuff. And so they were running on the same frequency as Houston Cellular. And so ultimately that project ended up having to get scrapped and we had to get some different technology in there that wasn't this newfangled touchscreen stuff. And it was actually very similar to your, uh, your original micro story where, where there were like these, these printouts that went underneath these hard coded buttons is what we had to put back in there because Houston cellular was on the same radio frequency of, uh, of uh, these handhelds that we'd bought from Belgium. So um, funny, funny story. And you, you know, you think you're solving these customers problems. And at the end of the day, something completely out of your control, like the frequency that these devices are on, are on the same as Houston cellular. And when you, when the stadium fills up with, Forty thousand people, and everybody gets on their cell phones to take pictures or or send a text to their uh, to their significant other about the about the game. It ends up uh, it ends up killing the ability to order from the seats.
0: And it also goes to show you that the human brain is just not capable of thinking everything through. No matter how much planning you do, there's always something that you just didn't even think of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you guys have crossed every t dotted every i everything you could possibly think of you were testing them fine in belgium you were probably testing them fine at your office and no problems absolutely to be the houston cellular yep on the 800 megahertz frequency or whatever
1: whatever it was at the time yeah no absolutely it was it's funny it was and uh like i said i just happened to tell to tell uh my um, son nick that story this week but uh because we were at a ball game and he's like oh what stadiums have you been to and i said well this this one this one's i've got battle scars from um you know having gone down there um and so it's just it's it's funny um uh because no amount of preparation can prepare you for everything and and uh, you know you can prepare as well as you can to your point you can do all of the testing you can do all of the uh, you know Ideating and and we would stay till 2 3 o'clock in the morning in this empty stadium um, And it's me yeah. and like five other guys walking around the field trying to figure out where the signal was was dying You know, what was it and we were from Southern, California at the time so we didn't have singular wireless or Houston cellular um, So none of it ever broke when we had our cell phones on but uh, for whatever reason when Houston cellular came on that 800 megahertz frequency just got got bashed and all of the technology crawled to a halt and it was really really tough
0: that's hilarious oh that's a good one because i could i empathize with you so massively on that like i because i've been there where you're like i don't understand it's working for me yeah what the hell's going on here and you're (laughs) like no absolutely absolutely
1: uh, yeah. Well, and, and I'll tell you a flip side story. That was a really cool story that I, I got a privilege to go, um, years ago, our software, the positive Touch software product was really geared towards stadiums and had some really unique software that, uh, that dealt with stadiums. Um, before there was, you know, point of sale specific software for the stadium industry. And, um, and I was down at um, Qualcomm Stadium down in San Diego, and it was—I um, don't remember what year it was, 2003, 2004. It, we were at the Super Bowl, but we had we had had the system installed for the whole the whole year, um, you know, for the Chargers games, and it was great. And we would go down to the games, and they would they would pay us just to come and check out and just hang out at the um at the stadium just to make sure that nothing broke because they just did so much volume that they were like, you know what? It's it's a drop in the buckets just to have you hang out. And I was young, single. I was like, oh, I can go hang out at a football game all, all Sunday afternoon. Um so that was great from from my selfish perspective. But they came back and said, you know what, we got the Super Bowl here this year. We really want you guys to make sure that you guys have got people here. And so on a normal Day They might do $50,000 across their four pantries that they had, you know, so whatever that that equates to, um, you know, $12,000 per pantry Um, and come Super Bowl um, come Super Bowl Sunday. This is the first Super Bowl that this stadium had hosted with this new technology. They went. 10x what they do did for a normal game and so i sat and fortunately the technology worked in this case and it was fantastic but i have never watched a printer continue to print out orders it it did not stop for three and a half hours printing out orders to try and get delivered to these guests and they had hundreds of food runners that were bringing food out to these people and the servers that were in the service station cuz everybody's at the Super Bowl they don't want to get up and go to the concession stands they yeah. want to sit in these fancy seats and get food delivered to them and so um on the flip side really really cool story watching technology just kill it and make a guest experience just just sing and make a you know just just kill it from a revenue and 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 a and a, uh, and, and a guest experience perspective.
0: Oh, good. That's awesome too. That's, that's when it works the way it's supposed to, it's so beautiful.
1: Very much so. Very <laughs> much so.
0: Well, Jeremy, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. I will put links to your website in the show notes, uh, but just really appreciate this conversation and you taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today and thank you for being such a wonderful guest
1: well i uh i appreciate you uh you giving me the opportunity and uh and i'm excited that uh that sometime in the future we'll also get to uh get to go publish uh you coming on our show and uh we can uh, we can cross-pollinate and have some different people uh Get to listen to uh, to what you get to do on a daily basis because I'm I'm intrigued to turn the tables. This is only the second or third time, you know, because I've been hosting my podcast for a couple of years now, and it's always interesting when uh, when you're now the guest instead of the uh, the host of the show uh, as to where things are going to go. So I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to do that.
0: Oh, of course, and I'm looking forward to being on your show soon. And to all the Order Up Show listeners, thank you guys so much for supporting the show, and we're going to continue to bring great interviews to you. Take care.
1: Thanks, Tommy. Oh,
0: you're welcome.